Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. As heat waves like the ones Greece has experienced this summer become longer and more intense, modern cities like Athens need to develop new strategies in order to shield the city and its inhabitants from rising temperatures. This includes investing in public water reservoirs and drinking fountains, splash pads and fountains, pocket parks, green parking lots, trees and public spaces, sustainable mobility, and reused buildings. Taking these tough but necessary decisions, however, will require political will. Professor Petros Babasikas, head of the architecture program at the University of Toronto, who has also led key research on how Athens can adapt in the age of climate change, joins me to look at what steps the city can take today to become more resilient. Petros, it's great to have you on The Greek Current. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Petros, you stated in a recent interview with Kathy Merini that as cities like Athens look to adapt to the realities of climate change and rising temperatures, what's needed is an architecture for the new age. What does this mean? The title is a bit more grandiose than the spirit of the proposal. The idea is that perhaps as we look into designing cities and redesigning their public space, we need to think of things that are of, let's say, low footprint and high impact, even low cost and high impact. We need to look at network solutions and systems, and we need to look at plug-in operations as opposed to building from scratch, as opposed to what uh, in history of architecture we call tabula rasa, clearing out entire new areas of the city and building new things there. We have to work with what we have, and we need to find ways to plug in into the reality of the built environment that is, uh, in the case of Athens, very dense, pretty old. And so are there ways in which we can work with this reality, not to make iconic architecture, not to make huge public investments concentrated into one, let's say, signature building or redesigning a major square of the city, but actually distributing our resources and efforts around the city in a networked way and in an equitable way that can basically respond to the climate crisis. So I think it's about somehow shifting our way of thinking. So it is a big picture problem, but with a kind of small scale and high impact approach. What are some of your key observations when it comes to Athens? You know, what are some of the biggest challenges facing the city that you see? And on the flip side, where do you see opportunities? I think we seriously need to talk about the climate crisis and not just climate change but climate crisis we need to look at the city as what it is building stock of these fairly old buildings we're not really talking about how each one of those buildings has a you know huge thermal mass and is a heat trap and it turns into a kind of mini furnace for inhabitants and neighbors or spaces between buildings every summer with rising temperatures you know, heat waves used to be three days old. Now they're eight days old. Flood events used to be sort of more moderate. Now they're extreme and maybe rarer. There's a kind of uptick in extreme weather phenomena that are happening around us. And the way the city is built is really not helping us to respond to them. Both the fact that the entire ground of the city is covered in concrete and asphalt, but also the fact that these buildings that we live in are not, let's say, equipped to respond to this extreme weather. And we're not really thinking about adaptively reusing them yet. We're thinking about somehow building new buildings. The other thing is that the economy of Mediterranean cities and probably global cities has been based on two drivers, building, construction, in the case of, of Greece, the polykatikia, the adiparochi, and the automobile. Cities have been built for these two uh, systems. And I think the main shift that needs to happen has to do possibly with 
adaptive reuse, working and rebuilding the buildings that we have, making them climate resilient, perhaps, adapting them to climate, and then also thinking about blue and green infrastructures, the way that we can increase biomass, trees, plants, in every surface of the city, every possible surface of the city, and the way that we can retain and sustainably manage water, both rainwater, but also the supply of water throughout cities. And these are two systems that are usually relegated to a kind of secondary space. They are called the kind of environment of buildings, the outside of buildings, or infrastructure, what we actually don't see as part of the city. And in my sort of opinion, we need to bring that to the foreground. We need to kind of think about architecture and city building in terms of these blue and green infrastructures. Getting to that point, however, we know where either it's making fresh water more accessible throughout the city, planting green spaces, retrofitting buildings to be much more resilient, that will take a massive investment program. Is the political will there to make these kinds of investments? I mean, I think it needs to work both ways. There are laws in place, and there's a lot more advocacy to retrofit buildings, to kind of create layers of insulation, to make them more energy efficient. So there is some of that in implementation. I think political will is not only a top-down operation, it's also a question of the electorate. It's a question of citizens, of communities. I think we do need to look at the big picture. We need to ask questions about the big picture and look at the city as a sort of broader system. But I think architecture also has a role in operating in this kind of smaller scale as a pilot. So if you imagine a few pilot projects actually being implemented around the city, then being successful, then being supported by communities, then they can become drivers. They can become, let's say, the image of what can be done. And then this is something that can be taken up at scale at a larger level. But to me, the idea of Athens 2030, which is a kind of both a design project and then a research project supported by the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design at the University of Toronto, a team of student researchers and designers within the faculty and a team of also Athenian collaborators, is that this type of study can be sort of through different steps implemented at a small level first so that it can show the way. So I think these types of projects are also useful for you know, municipal authorities, uh, city makers, to kind of advocate and illustrate how these projects may happen. What are some of these projects that you think Athens needs to take action on today? I mean, I think, again, thinking of what is actionable, what is doable, what can operate as a pilot. There are a few proposals in this design research kind of project which we will be publishing in a couple of months. We've looked at a network of public fountains, Krines, both ancient and medieval, and let's say more recent in the last 200 years, present in the city of Athens. This was a system of both public infrastructure and architecture. There were small public spaces where people would go for their water supply. Of course, this was before the development of a kind of major central water supply network and system that ADAP brought into the city. But these were also works of architecture, and there were places where people encountered and met each other. It would be highly interesting if the city could re-implement a series of fountains, a series of public fountains, not very expensive to build, possibly challenging to maintain and safeguard. But again, this can be built into all of these architectures that we're proposing, maintenance protocols, 
that would provide fresh water to anyone in the public space of the city, reduce maybe plastic bottle consumption, and make an argument that this can be a public good. So fountains is one thing that can happen. The other aspect of this proposal and this study is the implementation of a series of pocket parks in abandoned either properties or public properties that are underused throughout the city, vacant lots, that can be developed as you know small-scale gardens, play spaces, which will both increase green presence in the city, but also have the ability to store water. Athens has an adequate water supply. It has a system in which really the capital of Greece takes water through major works of infrastructure developed in the last 100 years from mainland Greece, from Stereaelada, all the way down to Marathon and into Athens. So Athens does not yet have an issue of water scarcity. It is very likely that in the next 20 years that it will. And perhaps, again, as part of this pilot, we can develop a system in which we are holding rainwater to be able to support some of these pocket parks, to be able to support new systems of green throughout the city. So this would be another aspect of these pocket parks. The third aspect is that we can actually create public infrastructures that create architecture out of water networks, like splash pads and play areas using water in a very limited way. There's examples of that around the globe that reduce heat effects and make it into a resource that is available as a public space. And finally, there's already spaces in the city that are used in a particular way, namely, again, by the automobile. We have sort of developed this idea of a parking garden. We have entire extensive areas of cities covered in hardscape, asphalt or concrete, occupied by cars. Our proposal is perhaps this surface can be given at a percentage, maybe 30% of an outdoor parking lot can be given to trees. 30% less cars would circulate and park there, but then the entire, let's say, canopy of that open-air parking lot can be planted. So we're looking at these solutions that are probably hybrid solutions. Parking gardens, vertical gardens, the creation of a series of reservoirs within existing underground infrastructures of the city to collect this water that are, in our opinion, easily implementable. And they're really working with the building and infrastructure that we have as an argument to test how we could make the city more resilient, increasing biomass, increasing water retention, and then making water supply into a public amenity, into a public resource. Petro, you brought up something interesting earlier that, you know, this isn't just a top-down process. What can citizens do to take the lead and push forward with a lot of these important changes? I mean, I don't think there's any other way to deal with a climate crisis apart from citizens waking up to it and actively participating at the neighborhood level, at the community level, in the making of these areas. There are ways from allotment garden to community gardens, from giving incentives to neighbors to, most importantly, involving a neighborhood in the design process so that this is not implemented only by the municipality, but it's actually negotiated and kind of organized by a group of interested players and local residents. But then the stewardship of the park, the use of the park, the cultivation of the park possibly as well, through a series of incentives can also be passed on to local residents. I'm not saying that we're asking residents to do the work that the state or the municipality should do, but I'm, I'm saying that they need to be involved in this process from the beginning. And again, there's examples around the world and possibly even in Athens itself in which citizens have taken claim into the space around them and, and participate in it. So to me, 
It has to be both a top-down and a bottom-up operation. Architects and researchers and scientists and engineers have a role in that as mediators. And I mean, I think we've seen there's many examples where these projects have been implemented. But the most important thing, I think, is really to acknowledge it, to say that we have this building stock in a city that is getting very old, that is, will be crumbling in the next 30 years, and we need to find ways to renew it. We have to also recognize this building stock is a heat trap, and we need to find ways to allow ourselves to breathe around it and to reduce its thermal mass. So we need to shift the conversation from a kind of type of development that is only based on growth and building to a type of development that is based on reuse and that is based on decreasing our footprint and on increasing this blue and green infrastructure networks. And this is kind of something that I think we will be one way or another led to implement and forced to respond to because the world is getting much warmer. Greece and Athens is in a very critical zone where desertification is rampant, it's imminent, and we will be needing to find ways to you know, respond to this phenomena. They're now with us and they will not go away. And there are ways in which very simply and very locally we can begin to respond. Petros, it was great speaking with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thanos, and thanks for giving me the time. The UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus, UNFISIP, condemned an assault on its personnel and damage to its vehicles by personnel from the Turkish Cypriot side on Friday morning. Turkish Cypriots attacked UN peacekeepers who were blocking unauthorized construction work in the area. Threats to the safety of UN peacekeepers and damage to UN property are unacceptable and constitute a serious crime under international law, which will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, the peacekeeping force, UNFISIP said in a statement. The violence constitutes a serious escalation of tensions not seen on the island in years. The assault was also condemned by Greece, the United States, France, UK, and the European Union. In other news, the EU's reserves of natural gas hit a historic high Thursday, filling up well in advance of the winter heating season as the bloc continues to dash away from Russian energy dependence. This leaves the Kremlin scrambling to plug a gaping hole in its finances left by its decision to cut off European customers in the wake of its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. But less Russian gas also opens the EU to the bigger price fluctuations of the global market for liquefied natural gas. Analysts expect this to be the last winter where shortages are a serious problem, given that increased LNG production capacity from suppliers like Qatar and the U.S. is due to come online midway through 2024. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.